before we jump into our sermon this morning, All Things New, I wanted to help kind of frame some things for you this morning. We are talking about what it is that God is doing at Easter, right? We're in the Easter tide season, and it's a season where we're reminded that God is doing a new thing, that he's bringing new life through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're exploring what exactly do we mean when we say that? What do we mean by, by this idea that God makes all things new? And in many ways, it's actually laying the, the foundation, if you will, for our next sermon series that's going to be titled Rebuilding Church, where we're thinking about and, and thinking specifically for our congregation, what does it mean for us to move out of this really strange two-year time of COVID, kind of get a little momentum going? And I haven't said this explicitly, but the way that I've thought about our current sermon series is that it's kind of structured in these three circles, if you will, concentric circles, if you will, is that for our church, when we talk about in our next series about rebuilding church, we're really talking about three things. The first thing is we're talking about spiritual formation of people. So the first two parts of this sermon series, we talked about God doing a new thing in our hearts and we living into a new kind of story, the scriptural story, this redemptive story of God that we have in the scriptures. And we want to be the kinds of people who are formed spiritually by the resurrected Christ. There's this other circle called congregational formation, the way that I think about church. And it's what are we doing as a congregation, not just to be spiritually formed as individuals, but to be corporately and communally shaped together as a church. And so last week we talked about how God is drawing all kinds of people to him. And this week we're going to continue in that. And then the successive weeks, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about what we call neighborhood engagement. That is people who are engaged with our community and the world because we have a mission and a purpose that we're supposed to be participating in Because our call as a church is to be and make disciples of Jesus for the good of our community. And what Jesus has called us to is not simply to be church people, but to be disciples, to follow the resurrected Christ wherever he's going, and he's forming us in these three kinds of ways. And so we're going to continue on in that series this morning, All Things New, and I've titled my sermon this morning, A New Family, A New Family. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open to John 15, and you can hold your finger there. I'm not going to read it yet, Corey. Sorry, I jumped the gun. I'm just trying to give them a head start so they could find the scriptures. And then we'll be in John 15 and briefly in John 17 as well. Well, I'm in this class right now in school that is titled Marital Therapy. Uh, So if you need advice about your marriage... I am definitely not the guy to come to right now because I'm discovering how not good at marriage I am actually in this class right now. But I have this professor who's just this tremendous source of wisdom about life and marriage and married life and family and the dynamics that are at play. And he was telling this story not too long ago that he was teaching, I think he was at the University of Mississippi at the time, and he was teaching a class on marriage, and one of the students raised their hand and said, I, this might be a dumb question, but can you tell me what exactly is marriage? And my professor said he stood there and he was like, he's this expert, right? PhD, has done all the research, done all the studies, and a really simple question, what is marriage? He was just befuddled about, and he's like, I kind of fumbled my way through describing what we mean when we say marriage. But I really had to go on a search of exploring what exactly is marriage. And he said, I I was doing a research project with a really well-known psychologist at the time who they were doing some research and they were talking about marriage. And in the midst of their conversation, the psychologist said, 
I think his wife, he said his, his wife's name was Judy. He said, you know, when Judy dies before me, which is a really peculiar assumption to make, right? That you're not going to go first, but they're going to go first. He says, well, you know, when Judy dies before me, I will miss her tremendously. There's a lot about Judy that I love and I appreciate. But do you know what I'll miss more than I'll miss Judy? I will miss who Judy and I are together. Because there is an us that has emerged in our marriage that I will no longer get to be without her. And there's this sense in which our professor's like, that's marriage. There's this sense where there's this whole individual person and there's this whole individual person and they come into this relationship and what they do in their relationship together is they form this new identity. They form a new sense of self. They form a new family. It is neither just him or just her. It's this third thing that they call marriage. As I've thought about that metaphor in many ways, I think that's actually what happens in a very broad way when we talk about the church. Is when we think about our identity as a congregation or as the people of God, what, what happens is this, is that I come as my whole individual self into this church and you come as your whole individual self into this church. And what happens is when we're in community together, when we're in relationship together, when we become a new family, it forms a new us. There is something that I am not without you and there is something that you are not without me and we call that church. And when we talk about church as a family, sometimes we'll use that language sometimes. We're like, oh, this is my church family. We're not just saying like that this is a cute metaphor that we like to use to describe our closeness with each other. Like, oh, yeah, these are people that I like, you know, and so I just call them my family. We're not just describing this inner feeling that we have toward other individuals that are part of this congregation that we're a part of. Like, oh, I just feel so close. And it's a, you're naming that feeling that you have towards people. What we mean when we say church family is that there is this us-ness that exists between us because we cannot be this without one another. The scripture talks about it. Paul talks about it in this way. He describes the church as a body, right? He says in the body of Christ, they're like, some of you are ears, some of you are pinky toes, right? Like you seem so insignificant, but you help keep us balanced, so you are actually really important. Some of you are hands and eyes, and some of you are the belly button that catches all the lint that's going on in the body of Christ, right? But he uses this imagery, and he says, when you come together as your individual parts, you actually form something completely new. Not everybody here is an ear or an eye or a foot, but together, collectively, we become this new kind of thing that we call church. And it's not just some cute metaphor, this is an essential part of what it means to be a Christ follower, that we form this usness with other Christians. See, the problem sometimes is I think in the way that we do church is you kind of all sit there and we all look in one direction <laughs> and you're like, well, there's the pastor, there's the band, and we're not really looking and seeing each other, right? Because we're all looking in just one direction and there's this sense in the way that we physically set up this space that it's about your personal experience of this thing. You're the observer, you're the viewer, and whatever you're getting from here is the only thing that matters. 
But it's just not the case. We are supposed to be, we are called to be a family that is a new sense of us because of our collective faith in Jesus. In John chapter 10, for those who already flipped there, you beat me, and now I gotta try and catch up with all of you. There's this really well-known text. It's kind of sort of, or John 15, excuse me, not John 10, John 15. Did I say John 10 earlier? I apologize if that's the case. In John chapter 15, as Jesus is going to the cross, he has this really famous uh, teaching, the vine and the branches, right? If you've been around the church for a while, it's kind of a familiar maybe teaching to you. And Jesus essentially says this. He says, you know, you disciples, you, I want to be in you and you in me. And it's this really kind of interesting metaphor about how we're connected to the life of Christ. It becomes this really powerful way that Jesus says, the way that you bear fruit, the way that your life is going to produce the fruit of Christian faith is by me being in you and you being in me. And we love this passage. We love these verses. I love these verses. I've taught on them before. But Jesus says this in verse 9, if you're following there. Jesus says, you can pop this up now, Corey, sorry. I loved you as the Father loved me. Now remain in my love. And we love this verse, right? We love coming to church and hearing about the love of God and the love of Christ that he has for you. And, and Jesus is saying here is that that love is not just something that you receive once, but it's something that you abide in, some translations will say. It's something that you dwell in. It's something that sustains you in your life. And so the focus becomes for many of us, like, let's try and remain in the love of God. This past fall, we did this uh, emotionally healthy discipleship class or emotionally healthy spirituality class, which I loved, by the way. And the class, we'll do it again sometime, is about how do we actually become emotionally healthy in our faith? How are we actually formed spiritually in our faith? And as a part of that class, we observed together what we would call the office, morning and evening offices of prayer, which are really fancy sounding things to describe this five minute activity where for a minute you're quiet before God, then you read a little piece of scripture, and maybe if you're like really good, you'll read like a little devotional blurb thing from some Christian author or writer, and then you spend another minute just in silence, and the idea is that you practice this day in and day out as a way of abiding in Christ through prayer, through reading scripture. And in our minds, we think, I think, that that's what it means to remain in the love of God. We're engaged in prayer and in scripture. We're abiding in that day in and day out, in the morning and the evening. But Jesus goes on here and he says, like, that's great and all, but I actually have a way for you to actually abide in my love, to remain in my love. He says in verse 10, he says, I have obeyed my father's commands and I remain in his love. In the same way, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. So Jesus says to remain in my love, you have to obey my commands. And so we're like, done. I can do that, right? What is the, the Nazarene mantra? Don't smoke, drink, or smoke, dance, drink, or chew, or hang around with girls or boys who do, right? Like just don't. Be a generally a nice person, be polite, stay away from alcohol mostly and, you know, the dancing thing, let's just cut that out because we know where that goes, right, in the club or whatever. And we have this sense that, okay, I obey all of Jesus' commands, now I pray and I don't do all the bad things and so now I'm going to remain in his love, right? Now I'm going to remain in the love of Jesus and my life is going to produce fruit. 
But Jesus goes on. We got to read the whole passage. He says, I have told you these things so that you can have the same joy I have. And so that your joy will be the fullest possible joy. I love that. In other translations, it says, so that your joy may be complete. Jesus says, you do these things, obey my commands, remain in my love. You will be filled with joy. You want to know the mark of a mature, spiritually mature Christian? Joy. But Jesus tells us, he goes on, we've got to read like one more verse, right? And he says, actually, this is my command. Not the dancing, not the drinking, not the smoking. We can talk about those things later, but this is actually my command. Love each other as I have loved you. The greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. When we think about spirituality and faith, so oftentimes what we think about is this vertical relationship that we have with God, is that the idea is that I need to remain in God and God needs to remain in me, and so I do everything I can so that this relationship with God maintains itself, so that it's all in good standing, and then I'll have joy and peace and my life will produce fruit. But guess what? Jesus says, like, this isn't actually how this thing goes. It's not a vertical line between you and God. It's actually a triangle. You have God, you have yourself, and then you have all these other people that we call the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And actually, the way that you remain in me is by loving one another. And as they remain in me, they also love you. And it becomes this, like, the way that we express our love for God, the way we remain in the love of God is by loving one another. Isn't that crazy? It's not just about you. Nowhere in the Bible is the phrase personal relationship with Jesus. Did you know that? That isn't found anywhere in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament because it's not just about you. Salvation and the work of God has always been a relational, corporate thing with many, many people. And our being right with God is intimately tied into being right with one another. This is why this goes back, not just from Jesus, but in the Old Testament where you have the Ten Commandments, right? You have the first four, which are commandments about our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship false idols. No graven images. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't take my name in vain. You're like, okay, this is how I stay connected with God. And then what are the next six? They're about our relationships with one another. Can you just like not lie to each other? <laughs> can, you, can you please just not adulter with one another's spouses? Can you not covet one another's things? Oh, and don't kill each other. That would be nice if you could just do that. But it's this way of connecting that God says, here's a top 10. Four of them are with me. But what's really important for those four is that you do the other six because they're all one list. It's not just about you and me. It's about us. But this matters, not just because it's a nice, cute idea. This matters because of the mission that Jesus has sent us on. If you flip over to John chapter 17, we'll pick up in verse 20 here in a second. But it's known as a high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17. Throughout the Gospels, we, we see these moments where, where Jesus goes in solitude and he prays, Right? We see this repeatedly, that Jesus is a praying, he lives a praying life. 
But I don't think anywhere except for here do we get a glimpse into what Jesus actually prays when he's out there. It's really insightful here that we actually get to hear the words that Jesus is praying to the Father. And what we find is that Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, all right, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to be resurrected and ascended. I've done everything that you have created and called me to do. Everything that you've purposed me to do, Father. Wouldn't it be nice if we could pray that at the end of our lives? God, I did everything that you purposed me to do. I hope I can pray that prayer one day. And then he turns his attention to his disciples, the 12. And he begins to pray for them. He says, I'm being taken out of this world, but they're actually being sent into the world in mission. And so he begins to spend his time praying for his 12 disciples. Strengthen them, encourage them. And if you're Jesus, right? Like if I'm Jesus, I'm praying for all sorts of things for these 12. These 12 individuals are about to launch what we call the church. (laughs) They're about to launch an organization that's going to span two millennia so far. And it's going to incorporate at least two billion people. Imagine the kinds of things that you're praying if that's the kind of thing that you're sending 12 people to accomplish. (laughs) Like, God, would you just give Peter the ability to preach, please? He's not that funny and he needs to open his sermons with a story or a joke or something because people aren't going to listen to him otherwise. God, would you please just give organizational management? Just you know, in just like a few months, they're going to not be able to care for the poor because they're so into reading scriptures and it's going to cause all sorts of divisions and tensions in the book of Acts. Just give one person, maybe Thaddeus, maybe he can be the administrator of this whole thing because it's going to go sideways without him. But there's all sorts of things maybe that we would pray for. But what does Jesus pray for his disciples? Let's pick it up in verse 20. He says, I pray for these followers, his disciples. But I am also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teaching. And this is the prayer that Jesus prays for us. He says, Father, I pray that they can be one, as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they can also be one in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. I have given these people the glory that you gave me so that they can be one just as you and I are one. I will be in them and you will be in me so that they will be completely one. Then, then, the world will know that you sent me and that you loved them just as much as you loved me. This is crazy. Jesus says the witness of these disciples and the ones who will come after him, the way that they will bear witness that that I, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, have been sent by the Father is by their oneness in one another, their unity together, their their intimate relationship that they have with each other. That is the way that I will be known in the world. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? Jesus doesn't say like, hey, you gotta know all the scripture, you gotta know all your theology, you gotta know all your doctrine, make sure you got a great kids ministry, 
And then people will know, like, the truth about who I am. No, he just says, you, you don't need anything extra except for just being one with each other. And it sounds silly until you realize, like, what is the, 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 the complaint that the world has so much about Christians in the world today, right? They look at our 35,000 Protestant denominations, and like, you guys can't get along with each other? What do you mean you want me to come to church? Like, what are you guys doing? You hate each other. <laughs> I hear these comments all the time from people just like, oh, I don't know, I, I can't be in church because there's just so much drama in the church, Right? Just drama. That's a word I've been hearing a lot over the past couple of months. Just, I just don't want to get caught up in all the drama of church. And what they really mean to be saying is like all the divisions and all that conflict and all the messiness that comes with church people. And it ruins our witness and testimony in the world because we lack unity. And that's why Jesus says your oneness actually really matters. Because that's the way the world will know that, you, that I was sent by the Father. <sighs> See, what often gets in the way of unity in the church are chips. <laughs> when Paige and I first got married, we were warned and talked uh, to a lot by a number of folks about, you know, it's going to be adjustment living together. I came into our marriage having lived two and a half years by myself, alone, and now I was inviting this person. I thought to myself, like, yeah, there will be an adjustment, but it won't be that much of an adjustment, right? And so when we first got married, it became very pronounced that Paige and I have very different ways of living in the apartment. I don't mind a pair of jeans thrown on the floor next to the bed. Paige, not so much wanting the jeans next to the bed. Any other people like a little messier than their spouses? No? Yeah, me. I don't mind a few dishes in the sink. Paige, never a dish in the sink, right? Like we should just always have dishes in the dishwasher. They should be up in the cupboard. They should never just be resting there. It drives her crazy still. This is my bad. Where I will go take my plate and I'll sort of rinse it off like I'm going to put it in the dishwasher and then I just leave it there in the sink. I'm like, why? I don't know why I do that. I just do. Why do I take my shoes off by the sofa instead of just putting them in the shoe closet, right? It's like the same activity, just in a different location. If I could just do that. I'm not a make the bed person. I would never make my bed. I don't think it makes sense to make the bed. Paige is a make the bed kind of person, right? And I didn't know when we got married that my apartment, our now apartment, needed 37 more pillows added to the sofa and the bed, and we're protecting the sofa cushions with other cushions. I don't know how that all works, but it just became this adjustment. But the biggest thing, like I was okay with all of that, but the thing that really got me was, okay, (laughs) when it came to how do you store a bag, an open bag of chips, right? So open the bag of chips, and how do you all store it? Got the bag of chips, maybe you have like one or two. It's a little early to be eating ruffles, isn't it? Okay, I'll set this here because Cordelia is going to come and eat the rest of it. But when growing up, I only put the bag of chips the only correct way that there actually is to store an open bag of chips. You take it, you roll it up, right? And then you clip it and you put it back, right? Into the cabinet or whatever. I didn't even know that you could do it another way until I got married. So then I got married and Paige doesn't do the rolling method. She opens the bag of chips will eat some of the chips, and what happens for her is she would just fold it in half like this and then clip them 
man, that grossed me out to no end. I was like, can you see the structure of your chip bag right now? Like, there's so much more opportunity for air to get in there, and it's going to stale the chips. Like, this is so frustrating, going to get a bag of chips and just thinking, like, it's going to be stale because they're basically open still, right? And at first, it was like this cutesy little thing where I was like, ha, you do the chip bags like that. That's so great for, like, six months. I was like, oh, that's so great. And then you realize like internally, like I actually detest the way that she does the chip bag. And so the comments become a little bit more frequent, a little snarkier, and it doesn't matter at all, right? Like this thing does not matter at all. And I'm just like, stop. And we had to have a conversation eventually. Like, listen, I, I know that it's not, it doesn't make sense, right? Of fighting over how we store open bags of chips, and this tug of war of we're doing of like rolling method, folding method, rolling method, folding method, it just became this fight where like I'm trying to convince her that she needs to do it my way because my way is better than that way over there. And then I realized like it's not a my way versus a her way. The question isn't whether we'll do it my way or her way. The question is how are we as a married couple going to fold the bag of chips because there's this, there's this relationship, this marriage that had been cultivated where there's us now. And we have to think about us now. See, in the church, we get caught up in this tug of war of like my way or your way all the time, don't we? Over petty chip bags. I want hymns. Well, I want contemporary music. I want pews. Well, I want chairs. I want the sermon to be longer. I want the sermon to be shorter. Amen. Kids' ministry is the most important thing. No, seniors' ministry is the most important thing. Well, we need to use this translation of the Bible. No, you need to use this translation of the Bible. Here's a theological emphasis you should be preaching on more. Well, here's a theological emphasis that you should be preaching on more, Pastor. And we go back and forth, back and forth in this tug of war over preferences because we come with our whole selves, they come with their whole selves, and we think that we're engaged in this conflict. That's not the way that Paul or the Scripture of the New Testament frame what church is like. What we do is when we come together, we think and discern, well, what about us? How are we going to do these things together? And when we get caught up in petty things like this, we cease to be family. We just want to beat and win, each, win over each other. And even beyond this stuff, like you, you just wait, you hang around church long enough, Right? Because it's not just this petty stuff. There's real hurt that happens in the church. There's real conflict that happens in church. And it becomes this weird, like, well, there, what's wrong with the church? I'm out of here. Well, you know what? You're actually what's wrong with the church. We're going to go start. I heard this past month of two different churches going through splits because of stuff like this. And what the New Testament, what the scriptures speak into this moment, they say, you're, you're a new whole thing that we call church. And that's a family. And you can't just walk away and leave that. And what we in our church and our congregation are trying to do is form that identity of us. Who are we as the people of God? What has God gifted our congregation to do? To be this new expression of family and community that we call church. Who is us? 
And we have to do that, not just coming on a Sunday morning. That usness, right, that's cultivated in a marriage, this is what I'm learning in my marriage, that actually takes a lot of effort. It takes date nights. It takes debriefing at the end of the evening with each other. How was your day? What went on? What was intense? What, what gave you joy? Like, touch base with each other instead of just turning on Netflix, which is, like, so easy for Paige and I to do. It takes time, not just to be around community sometimes, but to actually, hey, we need to cultivate our relationship together. And in so much as we're able to cultivate that in our marriage, us begins to grow and develop and, and sustain itself. The same is true in the church. We can't just come on a Sunday morning and just be like, okay, I guess this is our church. Like, no, we're calling you and inviting you into something more deep and profound than that. We're inviting you into family to help form in us. And that takes time. That's why we, home groups that we're going to be announcing here in a little bit, that's why we do home groups, Bible studies. Not just to feed your knowledge, but that you might be in relationship to each other and form this unique self and identity that wouldn't exist without each other. For those who might be newish here, <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was like, this sermon probably feels like we're asking you to marry the church before we even dated. You're like, well, this is our second date. Like, what? <laughs> Hold on, slow your roll just a little bit. But the vision here in many ways is to say what we're concentrated on, what our focus on is forming this community that has a unique identity that wouldn't exist without each other. And we're inviting people not just to be in relationship with God, but as disciples of Jesus, being in relationship with one another. That is church family. That is church family. May it be so in our congregation.